Welcome to Lips on Life. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and in this interview series, I'm talking to extraordinary people who are living their dreams. My next guest is Jessica O. Matthews. At age 19, Jessica invented the socket ball, an energy-generating soccer ball. And by the age of 22, she had founded Uncharted Play, a renewable energy company. Now only 28, Jessica's long list of accomplishments includes being named a Forbes 30 Under 30, one of Fortune's most promising women entrepreneurs, Black Enterprises Innovator of the Year, and Scientist of the Year by the Harvard Foundation. Who is this woman? How does she do it? And my goodness, does she sleep? Let's find out now. Jessica, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So with all of my guests, I like to get started at the beginning, uh, the very beginning. So where were you born? I was born in a town called Poughkeepsie uh, in New York, I think best known for uh, Snooki from the Jersey Shore. So that's where I'm from. It's uh, about two hours north of New York City. But your family is not from the U.S. No. The story is like, how did we get from Nigeria, which is where my entire family's from, to Poughkeepsie? Um, pretty interesting. We're all part of the Ishin tribe, which is from Edo State um, <clears throat> in Nigeria. And my parents, though, they didn't meet in Nigeria despite being from the same small tribe. They actually met in Brooklyn, which is why New York is amazing. They met in Brooklyn. They were both uh, grad students in school that ended up moving upstate for work. I don't know if either of them expected or thought that they'd spend so much time in the U.S. My father ended up ultimately really doing a lot more business in Nigeria and spending most of his time there. My mom always thought that she would have went back um, for good after graduation. But then when she started having kids, stayed here, uh, but made sure to keep us very close to our roots. So we would go back at least once a year, visiting family for different events, uh, for summer vacations. And I I feel wholeheartedly uh, that I am truly a Nigerian American. Like it's a major part of who I am, how I think about um, my family and my, uh, my perspective. I'm actually officially a dual citizen. I have a ECOWAS, uh, which is our Nigerian passport uh, for all of Western Africa. Um, and I have my U.S. passport, too. So did you become a dual citizen later in life because you were born here? Yeah, I became a dual citizen later in life. Uh, I went went back, did all the paperwork, got the passport. And it's actually relatively easy as long as your parents were born there and you go there a certain number of times. And do you still go frequently? Oh, yeah. I literally just got back from Nigeria on Sunday. Yeah, like I are just you going for there. business or personal? So a mix of both this trip. Uh, my mom was in Abuja with my dad and my two brothers on vacation, and so I was going to Abuja for some meetings and was able to stay in our family house and hang out with them, and it was fun. Me and my mom went shopping, you know, did the thing. So let's go back to growing up. Um, you are now the founder of this incredibly successful energy and tech firm. Was science something that you always gravitated to in elementary school? Invention was really something I think I always gravitated to. Like, you know, it's really funny. Um, I grew up believing for a decent amount of time until I was like 12 years old in the tooth fairy. And I, I want to give context around this because it wasn't like I was just some delusional child who believed in all types of magic. My parents were really, I don't think they meant to be this strategic, but to me, they were really this strategic. They did not have any pretense around any of the other fake things that kids believe in. So on Christmas Eve, like I didn't think Santa was coming because I saw my mom right at the kitchen table wrapping the gifts. You know, the Easter Bunny, it's like I saw my sister hiding the candy. It wasn't of anything, you know, particularly special. But so <clears throat> because of the way they did that and the way they kind of were very real with us, it was my assumption that 
they would never take the time or care to invest in us believing in the tooth fairy. So when I would lose a tooth and put my tooth under my pillow and then get cash, I would be like, man, the tooth fairy has to exist because my mom would never spend money on my random teeth. Like that's just not my mom. That's, that's not Nigerian parents. And so I go through up until the age of 12, believing in the tooth fairy, really believing, but also believing in kind of logic and practicality. And I love that they did this for me because what it led to was this belief in not only science and reality and moving forward, but also delight and magic and being comfortable with that balance of the known and the unknown. And so I grew up loving science. I entered as many science fairs as I could. I would ask for microscopes and biology sets and chemistry sets for Christmas. I would do all these weird experiments in the house that would blow up little parts of the of the home in a way that everyone was annoyed at me and you know and my sister was always mad at me for putting off some stink bomb in our bedroom but at the same time I was also like and there are some things that are just going to be magical that are just going to allow you to believe you know like how do you build without losing your hope for what's possible and your hope within that space of the unknown some people consider the unknown as a negative space but to me I see it as more the glass half full what magic lies there at the same time, I believed in science. I believed in magic. Like I believed in the beauty of the world. I believed in the intangible. And that balance of the two, I think, is what really brought me to where I am today. So you graduated from high school and went on to college. You went to Harvard, right? And was it at Harvard that you founded The Socket? Fun funny enough, so as much as I really loved science, I, the high school I went to didn't have the strongest science program and I ended up going into psychology and really falling in love with psychology uh, because it became pretty clear to me that while there are a lot of different ways to think about the specifics behind uh, engineering a new innovation or product or service, the real missing piece, I think, in a lot of creation and innovation is the human component. You know, it's understanding what makes us get up in the morning? What makes us happy? You know, we live in a world where there are so many problems and the problems are becoming ever more complex that no one person will be able to address them in any real meaningful way. And so it really has to be kind of a collective effort of us thinking about not only the solution, but also how we can make the journey more enjoyable and how we can make the the process of getting to the solution something that makes life still more fulfilling and more self-actualized. And so. When I went to college, I decided to major in psychology um, and later on added in a minor in, in economics. But I was able to still conceptualize the concept for the socket because to me it was actually more of a psychological invention than even a like scientific invention. And how did it come up? I was like 19, 20 years old, and um, I was taking a course called Idea Translation, Affecting Change Through Art and Science. This was a course that basically I heard, you know, gave you some money to do really cool things. So it was in the second year of the course, so it was still very new. And it was basically what they say, like an engineering course for non-engineers. And so um, I took it and I was uh, given the prompt with a team of people. We were given one prompt at first that, <laughs> I mean, the full story is that we were first given a prompt to create some like massively multiplayer game and um, we did it and like it was kind of, you know, it was pretty cool. We had this whole concept for like mobile health records and we presented it and our professor was just like, meh, like we were like, meh. And I, having had way too much fun freshman year was, and also having a Nigerian mom and I want to make a point, people talk about tiger moms, they do not hold a, a candle or a, anything to Nigerian moms. Like Nigerian moms are like, 
their their like intensity of their evil eye is just a whole other thing. Every Nigerian listening knows exactly what I'm talking about. And so I was like, you guys, we can't have the professor say, eh, everything that I do after like my freshman year matters. Like, or my mom is going to send me to the village. Like, I don't know how, I don't know what, but like, that's kind of the risk, right? And so we like locked ourselves in the room and we were like, we have to come up with something. This is for our midterm. We have to come up with something. So we're like, you know, throw away the prompt, throw away everything. What, like, what is just cool? What could make sense? And so... I was playing around, we had like a ball in the room, we had a soccer ball and we were talking about like windmills and just talking about things that we saw that were interesting in the developing world, a place that we all had experience in. And the content was these like bike generators and you see these different dynamos and you know, like different hand cranks. You know, if the ball is moving, why can't we generate power from that? And again, knowing very clearly that soccer is the most popular sport in the world. And for me, having several personal experiences with it, like in in the developing world, you know, one immediate story that came to mind at that time when we were in that room thinking about what to present was two years ago when I was at my aunt's wedding. And anyone who's familiar with the Global South knows that, you know, it's not even about socioeconomic issues in terms of power. It's really an infrastructural issue. Uh, You just expect to lose power day in and day out, several times a day. In some cases, when the sun goes down, that really is the end of your day. And if you want to extend your day, you're either going to use a kerosene lamp, which just living with one can be like smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, um, or you'll use like a diesel generator, uh, just to kind of get light, really, just for the basics of light to keep keep moving. And so at this time at my aunt's wedding, we lost power as expected. And my cousins, they brought in a diesel generator just to keep the event going. And I remember for some odd reason at that specific moment being really just nauseous because of the fumes, like finding them to be incredibly uh, just annoying. And so I started, part of my innovation process is to complain. So I started to complain and complain and complain to my cousins. And um, I remember very specifically what they had said, and it, it kind of, haunted me until that moment in that classroom when I realized that maybe there was something we could do. Um, they said, don't worry, you'll get used to it. And I remember this really bothered me because one, they were essentially telling me to get used to dying. I mean, they were telling me to simply ignore a very bad situation and a situation where I'm obviously breathing in fumes that are killing me that are horrible for the environment. But I think what was even more upsetting was that it was very clear that they, my older cousins, who I looked up to, that they had gotten used to the idea of dying. That that to them, the solution, the hope for their world, their life, their day-to-day was to get used to it. That there would be no public-private innovation, no, no amazing change in the system that could make it different. And the only time I really saw them not be so kind of acquiesced or, you know, just so accepting of uh, of the situation was when they were on the pitch, when they were playing soccer. They weren't even amazing at soccer, but you couldn't tell them they weren't going to be the next Pele. You know, the way they would play with so much passion and excitement and hope, that was what I, re- I remember observing and thinking, wow, like, well, this is magical. This is beautiful. You know, this is something that in the same vein, like we have this re- reality of the world, but there's still magic within it. And they don't have to live in two separate places. And so now you fast forward two years later when I'm taking this course and we need to come up with an idea and I have this ball in my hands. And it's like, why can't why can't this be a source of power? 
this moves as well. Like, so from a technical perspective, why can't it be that? But more importantly, as a psychological invention, why can't this be a very simple way to bottle all of that passion, all of that excitement, and all of that energy, literally and figuratively, that I saw in my own cousins, that I see in people all around the world who play this sport? Why can't we have them transfer that towards life? Take that with them off the pitch to, at the very least, be a spark, you know? Like, again, as I said earlier, the, the ball was never designed to, like, solve all of the energy problems of the world, but if it can spark in enough people the opportunity and the, the the realization of the agency they have to address these issues, then all of a sudden we might have a fighting chance. You know, we might have something that at the very least, which should hopefully get me a good grade in this class, right? And at the, at the and and anything beyond that, um, you, you know, could hopefully change a couple of minds and, and change a couple of hearts. And and yeah, and that was that was where the concept came from. It's amazing. And and you, by the way, did you grow up playing sports and playing soccer as well? I played a ridiculous number of sports and none of them being soccer. I played basketball. You know, I played tennis. I ran track pretty extensively. Um, and soccer was not what I got into. I don't know. You know, there's only so many sports you can play each semester. Right. Um, and so it's I think it's funny that I was able to fall into that. I use uh, our, our jump rope much more. I was never that good at jumping rope, but then I got better once we created the pulse. I want to get to the pulse, um, but I want to, so what happened? So you had this idea in class mm-hmm. and how'd you take it from an idea to reality? What was the process? Oh, it was incredibly difficult to take, <laughs> to make this more than just a concept. You know, I, I think what was helpful is that I had no dreams beyond like the day. I I wasn't um, fantasizing some amazing future that we're in of like where the ball would be everywhere. And I was just kind of like, this seems pretty cool. And you know, and I I believe that luck is is an acronym. I believe it stands for laboring under correct knowledge. Where does that, that's, break that down for us. That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's yeah. something you came up with. No, it's no. Something that, oh. it was something that like a real estate agent told me one time when they're trying to sell me something. I was like, that's great. That's that's great. I'll give that guy credit. He was kind of sketchy, but great, great, great. He had a great, great point. Um, but I do believe it. I heard that. I was like, you know, I think I said something like, oh, I'm just lucky. And he was like, luck means laboring under correct knowledge. So like, and I was like, okay, that's that's true because I do believe my heart and my soul were in the right place. And each day as part of the development and over this process, over now what would be the next eight years, I think that I've continued to labor and push and work very hard while keeping my heart and my soul and my mind in the right place for this. And and that was what was really necessary to do that, but then not really think beyond kind of the the next week or, or two weeks. Uh, you know, a lot of people will often, they have an idea and they start planning out their exit strategy. They start planning out their IPO. They start planning how they're gonna be, you know, so successful and so famous. And I was more just like, all right, so let's start by trying to get a shape the charge flashlight and a hamster ball and putting it inside of that and like rolling it around and seeing if it works. Oh, wow, it worked, that's great. Okay, let's uh, let's get like a normal like soccer ball and like some electric tape and some glue and shove it inside of that and like see if that works. Oh, okay, cool, that works. Okay, well, let's just keep working on these prototypes and then let's go and take it to South Africa and see what people say. Oh, and then, then you get the feedback and it's like, you see that these kids, even though it's a really ratty, crazy prototype, they're just like, in awe, they're like, oh my God, like not only did you just give us a ball, cause we barely even have access to those. You're giving us a ball that when you play with gives us light, like the thing that we need for our lives. And when you see that reaction to what you think is a shitty little prototype, you're just like, okay, I gotta keep going with this. I mean, my whole thing was like, I have no idea 
why God put me in a position where this was something that came to mind and I was in the right place at the right time and I had the energy and the right support to just keep moving with it step by step. But my whole thought process was like, who knows how many times someone's gonna get this kind of opportunity. So I'm gonna keep pushing. And now like 10 years later, I'm still just like, yeah, I'm just still pushing with it. And it's, it's, it's super exciting to see how that's gone. But really the strategy was like, don't think too far ahead in the beginning, just see what's possible. And I now, you know, hindsight, they say 2020, when I think about it, I, I kind of make analogies as related to like sports, you know, cause I, I did play a lot of sports. Like to me in the beginning, in, innovation and entrepreneurship is very much equivalent to, you know, the runners in Central Park or something like that. It's like, I just want to see what I can do. I just want to try to make progress each day. I'm competing against myself. Let's just see what happens. Once you start to get to a point where you're like, actually, you know, I think, I think I have something here. Like I'm, I'm, I believe in myself, you know, which is where we got probably, I would say right when I, maybe a year or two after I graduated college. So did you not have that aha moment in the time that you just described when you went to South Africa and presented the prototype and you saw that the kids were going nuts? How far into college is that? Yeah, no, that was, that was, um, gosh, it was like we were kind of doing little bits of development. And I think that was right after college, but right before I had decided to quit my job and uh, like start the company. So you graduated from college and you had a job. A job yes. unrelated to this. Unrelated. And I worked for nine months and then I and then I quit. So I graduated from school and went to go and work for a startup. Um, it was a software startup based out of um, based out of New York City, and I was actually the first female hire. And it was you know very interesting small company that was incubated in a larger marketing firm where I kind of was the a little bit of everything. Um, Marketing, analytics, you know, everything from net promoter score to the managing social media. It was all of that stuff, right? Um, and because I, I went to school for psych and economics, I was like, oh, well, I really want to run a think tank. Like, I was like, I really want to do applied psychology and marketing. But then I was invited to speak on a panel with former President Bill Clinton for the CGIU uh, conference that they have every single year. And it was an amazing panel. It had him on it the found co-founder of uh, YouTube. I think two members of his, like four members of his cabinet were on it. It was really impressive. And I remember going on there being really nervous at first, but then he said these amazing things like ab about me. And I was like, is he talking about me? Like things he, like, like that he just said were insane. And the things he said about the product were, and the, and the concept of the sock were so insane. Um, and then when he asked, like, okay, like, is this your your full-time thing? I didn't have the heart to tell him. I was like, it's much easier for me to say yes and then go back to my office and say, I need to give you my two weeks notice because Bill Clinton believes in me. So and <laughs> this that was is an kind amazing of, story. And that was kind of it. And so that's what I did. I was just like, yes, it is. Like, and then I went back and I was like, y'all. Bill Clinton believes in me, so I don't, again, I don't know where this is gonna go, but what would be dumb as hell is for me to sit here with you guys and like, and not see where this can go. I guess like it was 22 when that happened, and then it was like kind of 23, going into 23, uh, when it was like, okay, I'm gonna have to leave. And so from there, started the company, and that was when I still didn't know necessarily what would happen. I had applied to uh, Harvard Business School while I was still, uh, a senior at an undergrad. And so I, I applied, got in and then deferred for two years. So I had that safety net as well, where I was like, okay, the worst case scenario is that 
I'm the girl who tried something and didn't work out and I'll just go to business school. So found it and tried to play, started to move forward. And it was, it was crazy. Like working, oh my God, the things that we did. Like we would do meetings in hotel lobbies because they were nice enough for meeting spaces and we didn't have an office. Um, you know, I love that. My studio apartment in Chelsea was like the lab um, that we would just kind of like hack at things to build things, hired a ridiculous number of interns, you know, and learned a lot the hard way. So talk about the growth of the company. It's really interesting, as I was saying, with the sports analogy, if like at first we were kind of just trying to see what we could do, compete against ourselves and figuring out what does it mean to even build a company, the next phase became kind of more of like the track and field style thing where it was like, you know what? No, like I think we can we can be the best. Like, let's try to build something that's amazing that can stand up next to other companies and be an example of what it means to be a company that really integrates impact into their business model. And so in doing that, um, you know, it took a lot of time just understanding actually supply chain. So we spent a lot of time focusing on the supply chain and figuring out the best way to make the socket, figuring out the best way to build the right team, um, you know, with the right experience, the right structure. That's where I had to learn how to run a business because to do what we want to do the best, like the the groundwork and the foundation had to be very strong. Um, and so that's where, you know, probably the last like, three to four years were spent just kind of figuring all of that out. We um, had the socket out. And then after some experiences in different communities where either the girls just weren't always allowed to play with the boys and the boys would just grab the ball and go or, um, and some of the communities we worked in, once the girls hit the age of 12, they had to stay inside because they'd be too tempting to the boys. And which I of course think, I think that that means the boys should stay inside, but no one listened to me. But the, you know, that's when we decided, okay, we need another product similar to the socket that's as ubiquitous in terms of play and access um, that can be utilized inside and that girls will feel even more comfortable playing with. And that's where the pulse jump rope came from. And so began to push on that and um, develop that much faster than we even took to develop the socket because we had learned so much. Um, and then we decided, okay, well, where do we go from here? And about, gosh, I would say maybe 18 months uh, ago, and maybe maybe it's even closer to 20 months now, um, I had to make that decision. I, I, I graduated from business school. I now had not just the experience of building the team and experience of understanding the impact behind our mission and our brand, but also the the background to really assess you know, what it takes to build a sustainable business on a sustainable platform that can do all the things I wanted to do. And you're doing both simultaneously, going to business school and yeah. growing your own business? That was really oh. hard. I, um, that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah, I, I graduated about two years ago and then started to like look over what would make sense to move forward. We had to make the decision of whether or not we were going to be, continue to be kind of a play impact company and do more energy generating play products, but also other types of impact play products, more in the you know data related area or IoT and whatnot. Or if we would go down what would be seemingly a more boring path, the energy side of things. Play is sexy and fun and exciting and it pulls people in and it gets them engaged in what we're talking about. But ultimately, you know, where will we have the most impact? You know, where are we the strongest as a company in terms of our core competencies? And with a simple cost benefit kind of review, it was like, we it's really on the energy side. Like we're never gonna make the best soccer ball in the world. We're never gonna make the best jump rope. Like we make a very cool product, but what we do that no one else seems to be able to do really well is make is making that energy harvesting piece that goes into these things. Like we spent years developing 
technology that allows us to shrink the size of our core micro generator that goes into these products by over by over 94%, I think it was at 94.5% um, over the course of four years with a very limited budget. We were able to develop a supply chain around this, allow us to distribute 50,000 units of the socket ball and the pulse just within the last 12 months in several different countries from Nigeria to even the United States, Mexico, um, We've done work with Nicaragua, Liberia, et cetera. Um, and so we we understood that and said, okay, well, why don't we think about expanding? Like what really allows us to reach the most people and, and change the way we think about renewable energy in a way that is even more palatable? If people are coming in and, and understanding it through the socket and the pulse, where do they go from here? Where do we take them from here? And that was really the push for what we were trying to do. And so one thing we did was add uh, more educational materials to our socket and pulse because we're like, you know, we don't want people just to be sparked with um, this understanding of what's possible in terms of kinetic energy, in terms of their role that they can play in generating energy. We want them to understand the science behind it. We want them to understand innovation. We want to recruit them to be part of this movement to create the future that we want. And then next we said, okay, now how do we really hone in on building our core technology in a way that we can partner with companies all around the world to make as energy as many energy generating products as we can. And so that's what we ended up doing. So the the core technology is called MORE. It's an acronym as well. Um, I love acronyms. <laughs> um, and uh, it stands for Motion-Based Off-Grid Renewable Energy. And so our MORE technology is what's in the socket ball, it's what's in the pulse. And now we hope will be in almost everything that moves. We're not doing enough to get more out of life. We're not doing enough to address one of the key issues, which is energy access, and but also freedom in terms of the way that we move through our lives. Like technology is supposed to be something that is freeing and empowering, but in many ways it's imprisoning if you don't have battery power. You know, like if I look at my phone and it's under 10%, I feel extreme anxiety, right? I don't even want to go out. I don't know what I want to do. And so- You how, and everyone else. Yeah, right? <laughs> so it's like, how do you foster this growth and innovation and getting people really excited to be part of the conversation of what's next for this world if we can't power our hopes and our dreams and what's next. And so for me, I'm like, you know, it, it's not just play that's incredibly underutilized that could be used to pull people in to this whole world literally and figuratively. It's really motion. It's everything. It, to me, to be moving is to be alive. And when you're alive, you need power. And so it's, it should, it's a clear circle. And so that's when we started to say, okay, well, what if we took this technology and put it into floor panels? Furniture. Floor panels? How floor do, how, the floor panels aren't moving. When we step on them, they actually are. Oh. When we step on them, they're moving. When we sit on furniture, they're moving. We're constantly in motion. Like, to be alive is to be moving. And we should get more out of our life. That is really what it's about. And like, that's what that's what it came up from, even from the socket, from everything. I was like, you guys, we, there is something still so beautiful here. Don't lose hope yet on humanity and on life. There's something so beautiful in the way that we're just playing. Why can't we, instead of just throwing this away, why can't we bridge the gap between what's working and what's not working and say, you know what? Look at how alive you are here. Let's apply that to the rest of your life to get power from play. And it's the same thing here. It's like, for example, we're working on strollers that when you push, you can charge your phone at a faster rate than what you would be charging it even from plugged into a wall. And it's so cool because again, it's like if you have to push 
your child around, why aren't you getting power? Why aren't you able to charge your cell phone? When will this be available? So super exciting is that we're now working on, we're working with some really high level um, strategic partners that we're excited about. Um, And then we're gonna be launching in September, our US launch, we're doing an open house um, in our office in Harlem. And uh, we're going to be showcasing all of this technology and working with our partners to distribute these products. So these are products where we partner with them. They're manufacturers. They make strollers. They make furniture. They make floor panels. They make all these different things. We bring our technology and our expertise. We integrate it into the products they already make, into their supply chain, and then it's distributed through their own channels. So we're now super B2B. It's like very technical, very fancy, yay, 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 business school, and all those things. But it's very sustainable, and it allows us to touch everything. If we had to make the full product of everything, it would take us forever. But now we can focus on making our core technology and partnering with industrial um, and agricultural companies, um, everything. I mean, there's so much that we can do. And it's, I think what's also super exciting about it is like, again, from a psychological perspective, people have been thinking about energy access in a very kind of top-down way. It's something my father used to always say, you know, you can either ask one person for a million dollars or a million people for one dollar, but you're still going to end up with a million dollars. And the way people have been thinking about energy has been asking one person for a million dollars, creating huge grids and huge solar farms and huge things that have a lot of ecological displacement, are very expensive. And to actually get that to spread in a way that meets our needs and, and our very moving lives isn't isn't easy. It's not easy. Um, To me, it's very much just like, oh, I want the biggest tower, right? But what we're saying is it's almost really almost democratizing energy access. We're saying, why don't we try asking a million people for one dollar? Why don't we try collecting the micro energy packets from the floor panel and from my moving shirt and clothing and everything? And why don't we aggregate that? And now all of us are playing a part in generating the energy that we need. Now I see. I see why you have all these awards. You are changing the world. Literally, the this is going to change how we how we move, how we think, how we act, how we interact, everything. This is this is incredible. Well, I, I, I you're I on the forefront, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I definitely believe that you know the key thing is it's uh, this the onus of people who create products to create things that make us better as people. I used to always say, if you want me to recycle, create a system that makes it so that why would I want to do anything else but recycle? So the socket was great. We said, you know what, you already want to play soccer and now you're doing your part in terms of renewable energy and for the planet. This is the same thing. You live your life and you can be a part of the renewable energy movement. You can lower your energy costs. You can get the power you need for your your cell phone and for your other devices. This is awesome. Thanks. Congratulations. I can't wait to see um, what comes out of this. I've got a statistic from your website, and um, and it says this. It says, in the second grade, nearly 95% of all students will say yes when asked the question, are you creative? But by the end of high school, this will flip, and only 5% of high school graduates feel equipped to creatively take on the ills of the world. Um, so. Two questions. One is what advice do you have for people who were creative and kind of find themselves lacking that and want to be innovators? And also, what do you have for aspiring CEOs? And what lessons have you kind of learned along the way? Wow. Um, In terms of creativity, I think that, you know, I think the key thing is that people have to kind of know themselves and know like we have to be clear on what we're defining as creativity, right? So like on if we're defining it generally as the willingness to 
look at things in a different way and the willingness to kind of see the world and stimuli in a different way. The key thing there, I think, is really just kind of being comfortable with yourself and being comfortable doing things that other people don't do. You know, like I, I used to always tell people, you know, by virtue of something being innovative, it means no one's done it before. So like, what do you mean you want to go and study? What are you studying? It's innovative. It's innovation. Like sit there and say something like, like they're like, Oh, I have to go and do research on what? Like, like it's innovation. It's not, I don't, I don't want a background report. Right. And so that I think is really important to just be comfortable saying, okay, well, what, what is different here? Um, at the same time, I think it's really important for people to understand that creativity can be can show itself in many different ways. For example, I don't want my accountant to be creative with my tax return. Don't be creative. I don't want to go to jail. Do it the right way. But there are ways to be thoughtful and innovative potentially in the way that they d decide how quickly to get that done. Like maybe they realize that the problem is that they have 10 people they need to serve in terms of their taxes, but they only have time to do five. They know that people always um, send in their taxes at the last minute and they want it done like this by the 15th. And so they're like, you know what, let me create X, Y, and Z system to make this easier for them. That's creativity, right? Like that's also creativity to, to just address a problem um, versus just coming up with some random wackadoodle way to do something that would be approved there by the government. Um, and so, yeah, I think that yeah, the, the, the key things would be do whatever you can to try to be very comfortable with yourself and be comfortable with your quirkiness. Like find what makes you different, what makes you awkward, what makes you uncomfortable um, in particular. I really believe that discomfort breeds innovation. And so when there are situations where you don't feel comfortable, don't run away from that. Sit, sit in it for a little bit. Sit in it and think about what's happening to you. How are you feeling? How many other people may have ever felt this way? And attempt to have something come out of that and be willing to, to think about if this was a locked room, how would you bust a hole through the wall? Right? Like, and that to me is like the key process for, uh, for creativity and innovation, or at least particularly innovation, which I, I think is hopefully the point of creativity is to do something right um, with that creative thought. Um, so yes, being comfortable like with the quirkiness and the oddities of life and of yourself and knowing where that creativity can fit and manifest in many different ways and then being comfortable with discomfort so that that's the magic time that you can something can come out um, and you can push push through. And a, a good example of that is, you know, I had the a bank of observations and seeing my cousins playing soccer and seeing the issues that we were facing in Nigeria with energy and um, and reliable access to light. But it wasn't until I thought I was going to fail that class, which by the way, I didn't. I got an A minus. I got the highest grade like in my little group. Um, but uh, your mom should have been yeah, proud. Yeah, I'm sure yes, she yeah. was. <laughs> but the fear of fearing that, like failing that class is when I was just like, yo, like, like I am like you sit like I'm uncomfortable. Like I need to. I need, I need some, something needs to come out. It's really important to be open to the experiences and observations. That's the bank for innovation that you can draw from and, and yeah, and then, and go from there. I think in terms of advice uh, for, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs and CEOs, you know, I, I was saying earlier that the analogies of how I've thought about how we've grown in business, we started out as kind of like central park runners. Let's just see what we can do. Let's just compete against ourselves. And, figure this whole thing out. Is running even a thing for us? Then we started going more of like the track and field way. We can do this, let's be the best. Let's, let's, let's try to distribute the most balls or have the most partners, raise the most money. Like, you know, we, or there's things that were very clear kind of like 
goals, but they they weren't really interacting with the world around us. Um, I think that ultimately now where we are and where I think every CEO needs to get to to really build a long-term sustainable business is more of like in a boxing framework. Um, I like to box for fun. Like that's why I jump rope so much. I remember one time my boxing coach was like, you're never going to throw a combination and hit someone and they're just going to smile and say thank you. Like they're going to want to hit you back. And ultimately, I think that's what real sustainable business is. It's realizing that with every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And when you're planning out how to move, always think about how your presence affects the industry, affects the space you're in, affects even the people who you, who work with you. Not, not everything is about, oh, I want to hit this or I want to achieve this. It's more about a very dynamic ecosystem. And there's so many moving parts. You can't, you can't avoid those moving parts. You can't predict those moving parts. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But what you can do is be aware that things are always moving. That awareness, even if you can't control it, will allow you to stay in the ring, right? Will allow you to keep going. Um, and so I think that recognizing that you'll go through those phases and, and just being aware of those phases will allow you to have the longevity that I think we've been really fortunate to have being a business you know, it's been around for over five years. It's, it's huge as a startup, um, especially as we pivoted and grown. And then on the same side, I would say find comfort in thinking ahead and also thinking in the moment. Um, in the earliest stages of what you're trying to build, you should like ahead should be like thinking a month from now. You should only be thinking about the now, like how do I get through today? And maybe what do I think might be happening in a month? Max, max. Like you want to keep it super short term because otherwise um, you'll just get so overwhelmed that you'll be paralyzed and, and you won't do anything. So, you know, for me, it's like start with just, okay, like let me just see what, this is what I'm doing this day. This is what I want to do this day. Before you know it, it's seven days is a week. Before you know it, four weeks is a month. Before you know it, one month, you know, 12 months is a year. Before you know it, you've been in business for five years. Um, and I think doing that is really important. Like just resist the, the temptation to dream about success in the long term because it, I could have never imagined that I'd be where I am. And if I had overplanned, I think I would have been worse off. I think that I, you know, you have to just go with the flow. And people talk about strategy versus planning. Like plans will change, but strategies don't have to, right? Strategies are meant to adjust. So you should have a strategy for how you want to build your business and how you want to live your life. And so you can adjust to the the things that are going to come at you. It's been working for me. And even right now, sure as we has. build and, and plan for the next year, you know, with investors, you have to have a five-year plan with investors. I still kind of try to keep it like, okay, what are we trying to get done in this quarter? What are we trying to get done, you know? It's great advice. It really is excellent advice. Um, along those lines, I'm curious, you are so unbelievably successful. What does it take? Separate from the advice that you just shared, do you have any regular routines? Are, uh, are you an optimist? Do you, I mean, do you read quotes to yourself? Do you get up and are you boxing every single day to kind of keep your, your mind and your body fit? What, what it, how, how do you achieve this level of success so early on? I've been blessed to just have really great people around me. My mom is excellent um, at just making a lot of the problems I think are big problems not seem like big problems. I think she thinks all of this is just <laughs> cute <laughs> in some way. I mean, like she's I think she'd still be happier if I went if I just went to law school. Like, and she's more of just like the classic, like get more degrees than anything else. But I think 
you know, I things that I do now that are really helpful, I, I meditate. I try to meditate, if, you know, at least like three times a week. I wish I could, even if it's just for five to ten minutes. Everyone has different ways that they meditate. For me, it's just like calming the mind. And it's some people think that you should, meditation should be you have nothing on your mind, whereas actually it's more just like you're not controlling what's on your mind. So it could be nothing or it could be, you know, your mind, your subconscious taking to you to the problem that you actually want to be dealing with, like what's actually making you feel anxious or uncomfortable and figuring that out. Another thing for me is exercise. You know, yes, there's always pressure to fit into some dress or do this and do that. But what I've also found is that when I sweat, I sleep, I sleep better. You know, like when I, when I'm working out, I feel more balanced and it just makes me happier. Like you get the endorphins in a natural way. And so I do it because if I don't work out in some form over the course of like two to three days, I'll start to feel uncomfortable. Like I won't, I'll feel, I'll feel unbalanced and I won't know why. And it's because sometimes you just need those endorphins. So those are two things that I think are really helpful for me. And I'm really into lists. And I don't make a list at the start of my day. Even if I do things that day, I don't know what I did. Like I really need to have the list and see the list get get things get crossed off that's I I've been making lists every single day almost every single day for like years and it's amazing (laughs) and it's working as we come to the close of our interview I think I'd be be remiss if I didn't comment on something and ask you to expand as I was uh, doing research and reading about you I noticed that you traveled with President Obama and maybe even corrected him at some point uh, during your travels so tell us about that so another one of the most exciting things that's ever happened to me was uh, being invited to join President Obama on his uh, first Africa tour I think that was back in like 2013 and it was really cool because I had worked a year before with him and, and uh, his White House staff on the America Invents Act. Um, and that's when I was just first allowed to be on stage with him during the signing of that act. And that was just amazing and exciting. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm you know with the current president. This is crazy. And so for this trip, it was crazy because we it was last minute and we had to get to Tanzania as fast as possible. And um, we didn't know what was really happening. And they were just like, okay, just so you know, don't look at the president, don't hand him the ball, like just stand there and smile. And I'm like, why are we even, what is this? Like, what are we doing? And it was just really funny because I know his staff was just kind of trying to prepare properly for, you, you know, like just us not attacking the president with our with our product. Um, but I think what they forgot again was that the president, before he was a president, is a guy, right? Like he's a guy, he's a human person. And so we get we start to hear rumblings that on Air Force One, like the president is playing with some soccer ball. And we're like, what? Like, what's going on? Like, what's he playing with? It just turns out like the president comes and we're there and he grabs the ball and starts to show off his moves like at this space. So he's like, oh yeah, I played in the Philippines. And like, and then again, like, this is a guy, he sees a ball, he wants to play. So like, and not only that, he was practicing his moves so he could do cool stuff there. So he's doing really cool moves. Then he gets the president of Tanzania and he like engages in like a soccer game, like back and forth. The guys in his suit, one of the executives from GE is there like, oh, I guess we're all just playing a soccer game now. And he picks it up and is saying all these amazing things. And then he went to like explain some of the technical specs behind the product. He flipped two words. He said something like, oh, um, three hours of play gives you 30 minutes of light when it's actually, you know, 30 minutes of play gives you three hours of light with that lamp. And I didn't even think, I was just like, no. And I said what it actually was. And I- You interrupted him? I did, (laughs) I did. And to be honest, 
you gotta blame it on my mom. I don't know who else you can blame it because she's the one that raised me, right? And like I told, like, and I was just like, oh my god. And I, I told my mom, I was just like, mom, like I got corrected to president, like I can't believe it. And she's just like, you had to. I mean, like you had to. It's the president. Like you, you if, if he said it, it would be true if you didn't correct him. I was, I was like, mom, I didn't even think about it. I just did it, like. And that's that's what's kind of cool. I was raised to just uh, not be afraid. So this comes full circle back to the start of our interview, and it all goes back to your mom. So thank God for strong mothers. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, congratulations on all of you you've achieved. Twenty eight years old. We have so much more to see from you, to expect from you. I look forward to watching it all. And if we had time, I would ask you more about your dreams and your visions and what you want for the world and what you want for your company. But we'll just have to watch. Jessica Matthews, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. This is Jessica Lips with Lips on Life. Thank you for listening.